You are listening to audio from the Decidedly Podcast. For more information, find us on Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. So I came over to your house the other day. We did the uh, they did the new cold plunge that you bought. Yeah, you did a good job. I, I did. I thought it was really good. I thought the hardest part about it was not being in the, you know, 45 degree water for three minutes, but it was preparing to get in the 30, the 45 degree <laughs> water. That was harder than being in the water. Well, yeah. You know, a friend of mine brought his girlfriend over to do it yep. and she doesn't do that stuff. And so it was, I think it was her first time and she hovered like for a full minute and he just kept saying i'm not starting the timer until you're all the way in yeah. and he, it was to the point where like her butt cheeks were like slapping up against the water it, yeah and i just said you're torturing yourself like <laughs> you're torturing yourself well just i get in the dang water i had i had learned that i i when i was doing a lot of hiking in an area that was real up and down somebody told me this and it really made a lot of sense because i used to brace myself going down the mountain and i would fight the gravity and it was hard. Okay. It's hard on your head, your, your your hips, your knees, everything. And he said, just go with it. Just let let gravity work. Just relax and go down the mountain, go down the hill. And I thought, all right, I'm going to get in this 45 degree water. I'm not going to fight it. I'm not going to clench. I'm not going to grit my teeth and, you know, tighten up. I'm yeah. just going to embrace it. Just get and right just, in. And just go in. So it was all mindset really and you know what's funny is that it stinks every single time because i do it every day <laughs> oh, yeah, it's burning. i was like oh my god oh, i gotta go and i get out there but i still treat it the same way once i once i get out there boom unclip throw the top off get in no thoughts um so a lot of things we do like that are, are that are difficult our mindset is really important to how tolerable it is when we're doing it and our guest today he's an expert on mindset you know Mike Moore, better known as Mindset Mike. He was on episode 115. He's back. You remember him as former FBI crisis negotiator with seven years of service. He's a mindset coach to top athletes and businesses through his company, The Unfair Advantage. And he's a seasoned wrestling coach with 19 years experience. As a three-time NCAA championship coach and former NCAA Division I wrestler himself, he's got an amazing track record of nurturing talent over 100 state places, 50 All-Americans, nine national championships under his guidance. He's back again, and we dive a little bit deeper. So if you haven't listened to our last episode, don't worry. Uh, you can listen to that one after you listen to this one. Mike, we could probably talk to him for five straight hours and get nothing but gold. Stick around, learn a little bit, improve your mindset. I'm Singer Smith. As always, I'm with my dad, Sean Smith, and this is Decidedly. Glad you're back, Mike. I think we ran out of time for all of the questions that I was trying to dig into your brain and extract wisdom from. So, yeah, thanks you, for being here. You yeah, guys ran out of time. I'm, I wasn't even I'm here to add that. to it. <laughs> it would have you would have taken away from I, it. I, I would have. <laughs> I would have detracted. I'm sure. <laughs> I so, Mike. Since we talked last, I was at a tournament, and you had given me advice on how to, you know, approach. Um, approach the match in a like healthier way, right? I was always kind of I'm hyping myself up, trying to make this dude my enemy so that I could really aggressively like 
attack in the in the tournament and I, it worked it was doing i i that helped a lot i did get injured though and it man it hurt so bad i'm limping off the mat you know i'm i can't really tell if like it's physical pain or just embarrassment manifesting in physical pain you know um and the next day it was horrible i couldn't walk i couldn't move without crutches i had a friend of mine take me to the knee doctor to the surgeon i'm in the you know lobby with my leg fully extended just wailing in pain like every little move that i made was you know torturous get the x-ray the doctor comes in he goes all right dude so it's a sprain I go, okay, so I'm a, I'm wow. a big weenie then, huh? And he was like, no, 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 you know, he's being nice to me. But I'm thinking, all I can think of is I'm such a loser. And by within 48 hours, I was back in the gym lifting weights. And I'm like, how do I awesome. go from being unable to move, unable to walk, to full and total use of my knee? Yeah, I felt it a little bit. It was a little tender, but I could go squat two days later. And I figure there's got to be some something something within that has to be within my head. Is that your question to me? Well, I don't, what do you, how often do you? Here's maybe a better question: Is is, is that something that you experience with injuries? Uh, do athletes overplay it in their own mind? Yeah, all the time, all the time. It's 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 the it's like uh, you know people talk about psychosomatic illnesses all the time, where literally you psych yourself into illness. So. A lot of the times we think something is much worse than it is. So our brain projects things as much worse than it is, whether it's like something physical in our body, something going on in our life. So it gets made out much worse than it is. So there's, there's that viral video. I think it's Will Smith narrating, talk about how everything you want is on the other side of fear. And it's one example is someone that thinks they're reaching into a, into a cage full of tarantulas and it's a cage full of teddy bears, Yeah, but they're freaking out because they think it's a teddy bear. I'm sorry. I think it's a tarantula. There's someone who thinks that they're about to get dumped into like deep water and it's only, you know, two feet deep, but they're sitting there freaking themselves out. Their whole body's convulsing. They can't focus. They can't think. So really like our reality is our perception. So if you perceive that because the pain was so bad that it was going to be that bad, then your brain's going to project that on the rest of your body. And then chemically, your brain's going to produce a bunch of survival related chemicals. We talked about cortisol last time. So your body was probably flowing with cortisol, which made everything hurt worse, um, which made your thoughts less clear. You weren't able to logically talk yourself down of like, well, I didn't hear pop, so it's probably not this. And well, you know, like it, it does hurt, but most likely it's that. Your brain immediately went to the worst case scenario, just like the tarantulas, just like the deep water. Yeah, I immediately was in the worst case scenario. Like I tore my ACL. I'm going to be out for nine well, it, months. It, it popped. There was an audible pop. I it, did hear it, which yeah. did not help my fear. <laughs> you know, it's so you did hear a pop. Okay, so that's so. I, I was just assuming you didn't hear a pop. But on the flip side, if you notice, as soon as you found out you were good, you felt better. Yeah, I, I, almost immediately. I walk. I walked out. I was like, well. If he says it's sprained, I can probably not use these crutches. And it was hard. It's like I limped. It's not like I immediately ran to the car. I'm like, I, it took me forever, but I got there. I wasn't even willing to attempt putting weight on it on the way in. On the way out, I'm like, yeah, let me see if I can get over this curb. Yeah. So, you know, obviously it was something where it was something where the second that your brain realized that you're okay, the other chemicals came around and you immediately move forward. So that just shows you the power of, you know, the mind-body connection where, you thought it was bad, it made you feel worse. You realized it was good, you immediately felt better. Make sense? 
Yeah, 100%. I think people probably do that with money a lot. Yeah, they. I think they do. I think yeah, people I get think, wrapped up in their fears and they, you know, they concern that they're running out of money and that causes them to make bad decisions. Uh, Sanger and I were talking about this the other day. We we had a conversation that we both had observed that we were only working with people who were financially successful over a long period of time. In other words, we said, you know, gosh, none of our clients fail out and just kind of run out of money. And so I was I was thinking about because I, I listened to the episode that you guys did which was which was good in spite of the handicap that you had of me not being there uh but but it was i wonder how much of the success that we see with financial advisory clients and and like you can talk about to this in your mindset clients and your coaching clients that you do in sports how much of the success do you think is attributable to the process you take them through as opposed to how much of it is simply being good at selecting the right people to work with. Cause I think we have positive selection. We work with people who care about their money, who want, who are, you know, advice receptive, who, you know, have emotional stability. How much of that do you think goes to either side of that? I don't think it's an either, or I think it's an and right. So I'll, I'll relate it to sports. Talent only carries you so much, right? Just like having a lot of money only carries you so much. You got to know how to use it, how to not use it, how to invest it, et cetera. So ultimately, when it comes down to success, let's just talk high performers. It comes down to um, their habits and their, da- their daily habits and their, and their process. So when it comes to selecting coaching clients, similarly, I just invested in a like, the most expensive coaching course, business coaching course that I've ever invested in. Um, and there, there's a quote, hopefully I remember later, something along the lines of like, when you invest an insane amount of money in yourself, you tend to get really good results. I'll try to remember that quote later. But in this course, one of the biggest things that they talk about, which I and you, I think do naturally, when, when you know the process that gets results, you're not, you're, you're not concerned with like all of the people that could potentially coming in. You, you know, the fit that you need to get the results that you want. Even if you don't necessarily have the most money, or even if you know, on my end, they don't have to have the most talent. But at a minimum, they have to be good at their sport. At a minimum, they have to have some sort of money to invest. They have to have some sort of idea of, of how to manage their money. They can't. They can't be bad at managing. That's the ante to play in the game for sure. Right. Yeah. Correct. Like you have to have money, and you have to have basics understandings. Just like you have to have talent and have a basic understanding of the sport. You can't be bad at either of those things. But I could take. You know, a I, I I could take a client off the street and not get the results that I typically get because they're the wrong fit. That coaching program, one of the biggest things that they were teaching newer coaches is how important fit is. That if, you know, there were varying levels of people in this coaching program, some like myself with well-established authority, other people that have two clients. And, you know, if you if you want to grow at scale, then you need to know you you need to pick clients that you know you're gonna get the results from. So you don't have to have the money. You don't have to have the talent, but you have to have some sort of baseline. And as the coach and consultant, you have to know the fit that you need to get the results that you want. Because to put it all full circle, everything is about the process. Everything. Because you can get above average results with average people if you have an excellent process. With excellent people, but a bad process, you can get below average results. So you, how, how yeah. often is fear holding people back like you know i shared the example of this 
fear that I had ruined my knees for the rest of my life and that held me back for a few days. It debilitated you, right? Oh, yeah. I mean, for a couple days, it was, it was, I was, could barely put a pair of pants on. In fact, I don't think I changed clothes. But even clothes, just in actually. general, like, like all the fatalistic language, all the fatalistic oh, yeah. thoughts, yeah? Yeah, I mean, of course I'm thinking, oh my gosh, fit- fitness is like, that's like all I have, <laughs> you know? I'm like, what am I going to do? Well, that's how I consume my free time is going to the gym. And I can't, I'm not going to be able to do that. What the hell am I going to do with my time? I can't even go for a walk. Right. What am I going to do? And all of that wasted energy for something you didn't even know the results exactly. of. Exactly. Yeah. Oh, I, I think that the, the poor lady at the front desk of the orthopedic heard that in my tone because I called them. 30 minutes before they open, I said, please let me come in today. Cause an injury happens on a Sunday, Monday morning. I'm like, please, please, please let me come in. He goes, uh, we got nothing. I go, all, I couldn't even say anything. I just said, please. <laughs> and she's like, let me go talk to the doctor. And, uh, sure enough, I was yeah. in, but I'm sure if she had said, come on Thursday, I would have been her quote unquote, all the way to Thursday. And then he would have given me the same news and then I would have been good. Whereas since I got the news on Monday, by Wednesday, I was like healed. Yeah. So your your question was how often does fear finish your thought? Well, for, for high performers, are what types of fear are they dealing with that may be different than, than you know, r- regular folks? Um, and are they dealing with fear in the same way? Yeah, that's so... Uh, they do have different types of fears. Some are similar. Uh, they do deal with it differently. Customato, Mike Tyson's coach, he said the hero and the coward feel the same thing. The difference is uh, how quickly and disciplined their response is, right? How quickly, efficient, and disciplined their response is. So we all feel the same stuff, right? But I will say, like, with my niche being one percenters, like, my conversations tend to be different. These aren't people throwing up before matches, right? These aren't people... Yeah. Um, that doubt their ability. What they stress about is like, is my full potential going to come out? Yeah. Right. Like they know that they're good. They're, they're expected. They're, they're expected to win. What they want is to perform well. They want a, they want a performance that they walk away happy with. Like I've had a couple clients recently where like the only thing that they wanted was to have like their full potential show up. They've never had a fight or a performance where like they walk away and like, that's exactly what I've dreamed of. And it doesn't always have to be a win. So I would say, yeah, it's definitely different. Um, it's not a lack of confidence, more so um, hoping that they perform well. Fear is also an interesting word, right? I think doubt is the biggest problem that any performer deals with because doubt is something we create. Um, overthinking and doubt is the art of creating problems that don't exist. Tim Grover, I can't take that. I can't take credit for that. Fear is real. Okay, so for every doubt and all the things you're overthinking, there's a fear that's underneath that. So what I tell my clients is address the fear, ignore the doubt. You know, whatever the, you could talk to every thought. Thought comes in like, well, this this guy's got a better record than me. He beat me last time. Like you could address the doubt, but what's the fear underneath it? Usually if you address the fear, fear of failure, right? Fear of winning and losing, letting people down, um, not reaching my potential, or, you know, average performers, right? Like they might have different conversations. Like point being is that I think doubt is the biggest problem, but doubt slash fear kill more dreams than losing ever has. 
Yeah, I, th- I think, you know, one just of the like things, your injury, you, know, you were talking about that earlier about being clear about your why and your purpose. And, you know, I think once once we get clear as to what our why is, we can determine who's going to be the best candidate for our services. And regardless of what kind of business we're at, when you work with the top one percent of, of folks and we, and we were top percent of people who have wealth. When you work with those, are you finding that they're seeking out advice just as a, you know, hey, this is an extra supplement, maybe this will help? Or is there a level of awareness where they say, hey, I want help with this part of my head game? You know, this this is getting in my head and I want to be get clear that way. Both. I think some people understand that, hey, I'm good at this, but at my level, every 1% counts. Um, the most self-aware people are like, you know, I don't really have a problem with this as a whole, but there are some couple things I want to get better at. Most of the greatest of all times, we'll just take MMA, like the John Jones, the Zhang Weili's, you know, the, the, the Demetrius Johnson's, the world-class athletes. Those are the ones that ask the most questions. John Jones after practice will go up to every single one of us and ask us what, what we thought of his practice. What can I do well? What did you think of this? The more of the story is that when you get to the top 1%, they're obsessed with getting better. Kobe says the same thing. Like, I'm not a guy that loves winning and hates losing. I love figuring things out. So those sort of people, they understand that there's definitely things that they can get better at, but realistically, they're using it as a competitive edge because at that level, there's not really, they're not going to make any massive jumps. They're just going to get more strategic, more structured, have a, you know, slightly tweak their process. And you know, like my business is called, feel like you have a slight unfair advantage against someone who's equitably talented as you are. Yeah. I think the people who grow the most, uh, ask those kind of questions, you know, I've, I've observed leaders good and bad, and I find the worst ones don't ask the questions and, and don't want to know the answers. Uh, the ones that are slightly less bad will ask the questions, still don't want to know the answers. <laughs> And the, and the better ones will ask the questions and want to know the answers so that they can take action on it. What are you finding that those top 1% want to work on? It's different for everyone, but I would say the what they need the most work on is, for a lot of them, is finding a balance, uh, like an identity outside of their sport. Most of them, their identity is connected into their sport, I would imagine, in your realm, their identity is connected to their bank account or their portfolio. Um, you know, things going well, I feel good. Things going bad, I feel I feel bad in their portfolio. So for us, good practice, I had a good day. Bad practice, I had a bad day. So I think finding an identity for themselves outside of that, finding a, a purpose that's bigger than just winning and losing. Most of those guys and girls are pretty obsessed with the winning and the losing. It doesn't hold them back, but that's what they rank success in versus like having performance-driven goals and a purpose that's bigger than them, I think that's more so where it lies. When when somebody seeks out advice and improvement in the non-technical aspect of their game, right? Yeah, understood. In other words, I, I don't need to. I don't need you to help me with this hold or this. Yeah, move. I don't need. I, need I don't to need to get a faster. Yeah, yeah right. Just yeah. understood. Yeah. They they want a proven process to treat mindset like any other skill. I'm good at this, but I don't have a process for it. So, you know, like you can be strong, but if you don't have a strategic process, systematic oriented way to get stronger with a strength coach, 
where you're building every week, you're doing different loads, you're deloading, reloading, you know, doing all those sort of things. You don't grow at an exponential level. So for mindset, most of these people are good at what they do. They just don't have a system and a process that's proven that they can rinse and repeat. They want to reverse engineer good performances, not just hope that their psyche holds up because they're strong enough in their past, yeah. uh, in their past times competing. That makes sense. Yeah. So a lot of times when people are looking to get better, it's at least early on, it's really easy what we need to get better at, right? If I want to get better at golf, yes. well, I can tell that I stink at golf because yesterday I lost 15 balls. A lot of us can tell right? you stink at golf. <laughs> so, uh, you know, it's easy yeah. to go, oh, my driver is horrible. Same thing with jujitsu. Oh, my guard game's bad. I need to get better at my guard game. Um, so that's one way where people will seek out advice is they can just see the results are not what they want them to be. But for the best of the best, they're having great results, right? Hey, I have money. I'm I'm able to buy what I want and travel and go and take time off. I my business is great. I have money, or I'm winning my fights. I'm I'm the world champion. What? What? How are those? How can you people, help me? Right? Yeah. yeah. How are the people who are at the top? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, how clear are so, they? optimization and then scalable growth, right? Just like for you guys, if they're already good at it, how do we optimize you with a better proven process? Because most of these people don't have a process, right? They're, they're good at these things naturally, casually, but we give them an intentional and assessment oriented process that we can make adjustments and they have a third party expert that's able to manage it. So they know that coming into your office or my office, they're not going to, you know, there's I'm not going to tell them something they've likely never heard before. They're just probably never going to heard it the same way with the process behind it and a way to evaluate those results. So Volkanovsky is a great example. I didn't work with him, but he, like a lot of those guys, they don't have a mindset coach. They have a guy. I mean, he says he talks to a sports psych. I don't know how often, but I know like their mindset training is done with a bunch of underwater stuff. Like you've probably seen like deep end fitness in like a bunch of different places. Yeah. It's like people that do these underwater workouts, Navy SEAL type stuff. I think that's their like resiliency training. Anyways, he talked about how when he beat Korean Zombie, Rogan was like, you get better every single fight. You're already the best in the world. You're number one pound for pound, but you're still getting better. How is that even possible for you to get that much better? And he is no different than Kobe, no different than MJ, no different than Curry, no different than all of these people. They're not going to make big jumps. It's not obvious that their driver sucks. It's not obvious that their guard game sucks. What they're obsessed about is like making little adjustments for self-improvement every day, right? And the best of the best, they don't, they, they don't just set intention for what they want to work on. They assess on a daily basis how good of a job am I doing at it. So they're measurably getting better on a daily basis. So these little things call it stacking small wins. Each day, they're measurably getting better at small things. So it's just like compounding interest. Doesn't seem like much, but after a long time, boom, 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 it makes a big difference. Well, I think also that you've got to be willing to get bad at something if you're looking to make a change that's advancing you forward. You look at, I think years ago, and I'm not going to uh, remember the dates on this, but I think Tiger decided to re rework his swing, right? And so this is a guy that's winning PGA tournaments. He says, I, I want to rework my swing. And so he got bad for a while before he came back and it was even better than before. But a lot of that, well, you were talking about fear, Sanger. A lot of that fear is if I'm already good at something, 
I, I don't want to mess it up. I don't want to change something enough and I don't, I don't want to get bad at something. So I'll just keep doing it this way. That's good. Meanwhile, everybody passes. That is a, that's a common thing I would say of like, okay, let, let me preface my, my comment about 90% coast on talent and hard work. The top like seven or 8%, they're pretty intentional with what they do. The top like one to 2%, um, or like two to 3%, they're obsessive about like assessment and improvement. So what does that mean? When we're talking about high performers, those like top seven or 8%, they struggle with exactly what you just said. Yeah. Like I'm here. I don't want to mess it up. Like I've had teams where some of their really good players are like, I don't want to talk about this. Like it makes me think too much. It's like, you're going to be a little uncomfortable, but like nothing grows in our comfort zones. This is not going to make you worse. It's getting worse and being uncomfortable are not the same things. So those like middle high performers are the ones that struggle with that fear. The top performers are like, I'm not an expert in this area. This is something that I could definitely benefit from. And they understand the value of a J curve, right? The top 97% don't understand the value of the J curve outside of the physical work because it's a level of uncomfortability and vulnerability that only really one percenters or incredibly emotionally intelligent people have. Well, you got to be willing to take action. I, I know Sanger was working with a team a while back and brought in a sales coach. And I, I think the feedback that those th- those guys gave. Oh, me it was, was uh, seventy two uh, like eight weeks of three hours a week of sales training or right. something and w- for for guys that only do sales training. And the team at the end of it, I go. So, what did you learn? Uh, it's about what we were doing. Good, good refresher. <laughs> There's no way. Yeah. There's no way that's true. Right. Yeah. Sometimes they probably went in there though with the preconceived notion. Like I, I, part of my fit is like the willingness to have an open mind. Yeah. I, I tell them, I was like, I get insane results, but I need you to trust me hundred percent, even if it doesn't make sense. And if it doesn't make sense, ask questions. I need you to do all of the things for the purposes of exploration, not for the purposes of putting pen to paper because this is an exercise like school. So I've noticed that like, you know, let's say clients I work really well with, you know, there's a top 15 kid in the country for college wrestling that I work with. And I noticed he was getting results, but his, uh, you know, with some of the things we were doing, but he's a kid that does everything because he's supposed to, and he, and he does enjoy it, but he wasn't doing it for the purposes of like exploration and digging deep. He was doing it because I told him to, he knows that it's works. He sees results, but he wasn't digging that next level deeper. Once he started digging that next level deeper, he jumped that next level. It makes sense. So like your guys came in with the preconceived notion of like, we already know most of this. Like, yeah, we'll listen. I'll probably pick up a couple things. It's kind of like going to a seminar and they show a, a show a position that yeah. you're good at. Right. Like, even if you're good at that position, you could still learn a setup or two, a finish or two, like where he puts his hands. Uh, I would notice myself, I have no striking experience whatsoever, but I would go to striking and Muay Thai seminars like at my gym because I might pick up one or two things that I can then reapply to wrestling and wrestling for MMA and Jiu-Jitsu. Like these little bit of details. If I can get one or two things in those two hours, I'm good. Those guys are like, I'm already good at leg locks. I don't need to pay attention. He's not Gordon Ryan. I have no need to. I notice uh, when we drill, you know, typically Coach Travis will show us something and he, his rule is I'm, I'm just only going to show you what I do. <laughs> He's like, if you want to learn some move that I don't do myself, I'm not going to show you because I'm not going to be great at it. So 
Darsh jokes, for example. If a white belt asks him, hey, I want to learn Darsh jokes today, he goes, I don't do it, next. <laughs> and you can always and tell those is- guys who get up in front of a group and are just spouting some company line, and you know they don't do it. It comes yeah, through yeah. so So easy. I respect that. You know, it, took, it takes a lot of his students' years of training to understand that that's a good thing that he is is not going to burden you with his less than expert knowledge on the Darsh joke, which he doesn't do. And so he says, this, and I'm sure he could still show a Darsh joke. He's a world-class black belt, right? Like if someone really wants to know a Darsh, they could pull him aside and show him a Darsh. He's just not going to make it part of his regular thing. Of that. course he goes, I, of course he knows how to do it and he knows how it works and he probably still is better at it than everyone else in the room, but he's not world-class at it, which he is at the things that he does do all the time. And so when he shows these things, once once a student of his is like a blue belt level, they have probably seen most of the most of them before. You know, a few years, it's like I've seen him show people how to do the whatever hook flip uh, ten times by now, and I'll notice a lot of blue belts. You know, these are people that they've gotten their first level of recognition of hey, you're somewhat competent, and they'll just tune out. They're like, yeah, I, I saw that, I've seen that. And the guys who are winning tournaments are like, okay, hold on. Now, where's your hand? <laughs> like, wait, hold on. Now, what are you doing? And they're asking questions that the rest of the room goes, what? How do you, I didn't even, that wasn't even something I observed. I didn't, I would have never even known to ask that question. So, so, so here's a point. We, we can't always have Kobe level talent, but we can all have Kobe level habits. So those are the sort of things that Kobe level people are doing. Uh, George St. Pierre says he always has a white belt mentality, right? He's like, I, I'm looking to learn from anyone and everyone every single time. I've been at a clinic that I'm running seminar. Like when I was at your gym, I've been at a clinic where a kid showed me a move. It was like 12 years old. And I took something away from what he showed me, a middle schooler, right? But wow. like most people, like you talked about kind of maybe a little bar your sales team and most performers, if, if th- their mind isn't quite as open to see all those details versus on the flip side, the highest performers, their mind is like a sponge looking for any and every detail. Uh, a quote that I repeat a lot to my clients, what got us here isn't what's going to get us there. So, you know, we're, we're constantly going through ebbs and flows, hopefully in an upward direction, but what got us here isn't what's going to get us there. So that's one of my biggest selling points to high level people. It's like, yeah, you've been successful without this, this whole time. Um, what are you possibly going to do to get to the next level at this point? It's going to work harder. You know, learn yeah. new moves, you know, like get better at something. You're going to like start taking some new supplement and it's going to change everything. Like, let's try something you haven't because what got us here isn't what's going to get us there. And the same thing goes when I have a team win a national championship. What won either of those trophies that year wasn't what won us trophies the next year. We had to build on that too. And high performers get that. Yeah. Have you, have you seen those videos that... <laughs> They're martial arts guys or whatever. They're showing these videos in slow motion of how to like de-arm somebody with a knife or, or, yeah, gun or something. McDojo. Yeah, it just doesn't work. You know, just doesn't work. I was in just real with life. him this weekend. Shout out to my buddy Rob. I literally just hung oh, out really? with him all weekend. <laughs> Rob, Rob from McDojo Life. McDojo Life, He's man. Awesome. Oh, that's awesome. No, I'm sorry. Continue. No, that's well. Where, where I was going with that is, it, you know, in in our industry, there is that kind of BS that's out there. Where people put it on the internet. You know, you, you listen to a radio show or something some guy that thinks, you know, one product is the solution to everything, or, you know, you can time the market or you can do all this stuff. Just 
that you spend some years in the business and you know it's just complete BS. Is there stuff that you see, Mike, in in your field of of coaching that's out there that you just recognize? You go, oh, this is complete garbage. Let me lean in. Hell yes. <laughs> okay. Yes. I see that all the time. So it's not as much that it's complete garbage. You could just tell. So like, here's the things for me. When, when people coach only based on their expertise, right? I think that's like a red flag. You know, they talk about all the things that they know. Uh, I think that's red flag. The biggest red flag are people that well, are no, coached you from like a certain that are, when you that mean like, they're, they're talking just about the things they know. Um, it seems like that would be a good thing. Let me relate to, uh, yes. So I'm probably not wording that well. I think, okay. Imagine if, if like for me, uh, as a mindset coach, one of the things that make me successful is it's, it's not like, these aren't my guru opinions. This is like a compilation of 28 years of experience in the sport, working with lots of different people, taking my approaches from what's worked across many different sports platforms versus like, in my opinion, like this is the, this is, uh, this is the only way that things work. So let me, let me back up for a second, because that's hard to explain what I really meant. So I'll, I'll move that off the table. Red flag. Number one, if people are, are, are not really good in this industry, um, they got their coaching credentials from a certification, which is usually like 10 days, 12, you know, 14 days, whatever. The, you don't learn how to win reading books. You don't learn how to win in 14 days. You learn how to win by being in the trenches for a long period of time as an athlete, as a coach, and then on the mental performance side. Everyone can have really good opinions, but if you're going to pitch like a proven process, then it has to be something where you have seen it from all three realms. So a lot of people will do these like life coach or mindset coach weekend certifications. That's great. It's great. Like it's kind of like reading an ebook. It's a really good, it's a really good overview and introduction into the topic, but to then take clients and bring them through like someone else's process that she learned over 14 days. You know, again, imagine someone's an accountant and they take a mental performance certification that lasted two weeks and now they're a mental performance coach. I will never sell a certification for what I do. My last company did. I screamed tooth and nail about it. Um, I was like, the only people that will carry my name are the people that I brought on that are probably former clients that I've trained myself yeah. that I feel comfortable giving a championship team. So like when you, when like the people that take these certifications, that's usually like if they're taking on a lot of clients and that's your experience as a mental performance coach, that's one for me. Um, a big one, uh, another big one for me, people that like overvalue affirmations and visualization, they're both really important and there's scientific evidence that both of them are helpful. They're both part of my curriculum. But if like, you see this a lot in sports psych. If meditation, mental imagery, breath work, if that is your like main for, like focus and mental performance, you don't have mental skills. Yeah. You have a couple of things to calm you down, right? Like all of those things are important, but those are those are sprinkles yeah, on top a, of the icing technique. on yeah, top of a three layer cake. Yeah, yeah. So I would say those are my like two main things: is people that overvalue like those couple skills. 
and uh, you know everyone's selling certifications, getting certifications, and now they think they're a certified. So on, on the certification side, are, are you you saying that they need to couple the certification with some life experience in auth, you know uh, authority, or you just have a problem with the Correct. certification as itself? How many hours of residency do you need to be become a surgeon? Three years, I think. More than more Three than year. two weeks. More than two <laughs> weeks. Yeah. More than two weeks. Yeah. Right. So, like, I, I think I think that's the thing. There's no like uniformity, and like there 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 never will be. But you know, in the medical field, psychologists, psychiatrists, like all those people, like they, you know, there's lab hours, there's residency hours, and you know, the higher you go into the medical field, the more residency things you have to attend. Um, I give this talk a lot when people when people say that like, oh, you need to have a master's in sports psych in order to apply for this. I was like, that's the dumbest shit I've ever heard. Do you think I'm going to teach your, your, your major league team how to win from books that I read or like stuff that I learned in class? I don't remember shit that I learned in college. I was like, and I, and I, I, I loved college. It's like, I don't remember any of that. You think I'm going to learn that from books? You learn that from being in the trenches. Again, point being four years or a master's in a sports psych, I think it's valuable. Yeah. If I had four years to just like chill, I, I would go do the same thing. But that's not what's going to help you win at scale. Being in the trenches and then coming up with a process. Like I I did this for five years before I really started to figure this, like figure this stuff out. And that was all day, every day. I'll give you a quick example. I was advised, um, suggested to talk to a very high profile school in the country. They were looking for like the assistant director of mental performance. And when I went there, they were like blown away at my credentials. And they were like, oh, where did you get your sports psych degree? I'm like, I don't have one. Criminology, psych, leadership, FBI. They're like, oh, we can only take someone with a minimum <laughs> master's, if not doctorate <laughs> in sports psych. I was like, Look me in the face and tell me that reading books is going to teach those kids how to win. Tell yeah. me that the real reason is because that's how you can cover your ass so that if there's ever any issue, you have a medical doctor in the field. They're like, I know we're moving away towards from that. So respect, but that's not what wins at scale. Yeah. I saw a video from John Donaher today. It was hilarious timing because he was talking about how he thinks sports psych is the biggest scam in it's a scam. Yeah. A scam. Yeah. And I think that why he was saying that and that that Donaher is like the best jujitsu coach ever. Yeah. Right. He's he's the For sure. Bill Jackson of jujitsu. And I think he was approaching it from an understanding of like judging the field by based on a lot of the BS that he sees at, online. And the problem with that, and it's kind of true for our field as wealth advisors as well is that majority of people in the world are not good candidates for my service. And which means that what resonates with them is not going to be what actually works for the top 1%. Because what the reason this BS resonates with you is because you are someone who isn't in the 1%, right? The reason right. why BS resonates with you is you're someone who's doing bullshit. You're susceptible <laughs> so to that crap. You're susceptible yeah. <laughs> to it. So that's why I think... a. A lot of industries can look bad based on that understanding. Yeah. And and, and I, I want to make it clear, like no disrespect to any of the certification people out there. No disrespect to the people that sell certifications to make good money. No disrespect to anyone with a sports psych degree. Um, 
just having been in this industry at a high level, like that, all of that is good and it's great, but it's, it's, it's not what again, works at like a high level at scale. Well, I, you know, I've seen it in my industry and it took me a while to figure it out. You know, there's a lot of it, that information that comes at us. And I remember early on in my real career, estate's the big one because oh, yeah, they don't yeah. have to be licensed in real estate. Right. Like if I can give you real yeah. estate advice and it exists outside of the scope of securities or investment advice. So people are able to give just total BS advice within the scope of real estate and they're not regulated. So that's why it ends up being yeah, real yeah. estate right. so much. Well, and also specific well, think products, about how many bad jiu-jitsu you know. coaches there are. Yeah, because there's I'm sorry, not a, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, there's there's a lot of... I, I It used to be worse before jiu-jitsu. You know, you'd have some karate guy that would start teaching arm bars. Like, dude, what do you even... <laughs> what, what authority do you yeah. have on this? And I think... What, I, what I was going to say before... What I was going to say before is, you know, again, no disrespect to David Goggins because he's obviously like a very impressive human, but most of America subscribes to like a David Goggins type of mentality, which all respect, like I can't do the things that he did and nor, nor do I want to, but the, like we need emotional control. We need resiliency. We need like systematic mental skills. We don't need to run 200 miles till our organs fail to show that like, you can't hurt me and I'm tough. Point being is that like, that's the kind of stuff that like we get in a lot of the cookie cutter, um, cookie cutter mindset training is this feeling of like being a warrior. And again, zero disrespect to David Goggins. He is an incredible human and can do things I can never do. But like the, the, the people John Danaher are talking about are among the biggest fans of people like David Goggins. When on the flip side, like what we really need is like, you know, the, the emotional intelligence, the systematic mental skills, mental performance, you know, learning how to reverse engineer your best. I think, I think there's a lot of people who are susceptible to that. When you look at, uh, I, I had, uh, I don't know if you know who Rick Jensen is. He's a, uh, performance coach, but he deals with PGA players. And so I had him at, uh, he was at my house in Florida oh, was about five years ago. And he was telling me a story that he saw, um, Greg Norman out somewhere. And so he starts talking to Greg Norman. He goes, you know, I just, Hey, how are you doing? You know, so well, you know, you really, you know, that, that year it was Greg Norman's year to, to win everything. And he just said, well, you know, I just, you know, just want it more than the other guys. And he goes, bullshit. You know, everybody wants it. They're on the PGA. They, you can't just want it more. He goes, well, I just work really hard. He goes, no, everybody works real hard. He goes, what's the real, you can't just want it more. You can't just work hard. He goes, what are you doing? He goes, well, I, you know, I work out. Uh, you know, and every day he goes, no, what exactly do you do every day? And he goes, oh, okay. So he goes, I, I get up in the morning and I stretch and I hit golf balls, you know, till it gets dark. He goes, so how long do you stretch? He goes, 25 minutes. He goes, I know that because I arrive, but I figure out when daylight is. I arrive 25 minutes before that at the driving range. I stretch for 25 minutes when it's daylight that I hit till, till it gets dark. He goes, wow, you hit all day. He goes, well, then I'm not done. He goes, when it gets dark and I can't hit golf balls anymore, I go to the gym and I work out. <laughs> and he goes, that level of commitment, he had to tell that story to this guy who wanted to go on to the PGA Tour. And this guy was this amateur. He goes, you know, I think I'm ready for the PGA Tour. He goes, I'm already working out. You know, I'm, I'm on the golf course four days a week. 
And the guy just shook it. His Rick just shook his head. He goes, "That is not going to no Yeah, he goes. So you've got to not only step up your game in terms of what you're willing to do physically and technique and be at that top one percent, but look at how you how you handle yourself mentally, which is the stuff which I find really interesting that that you do, Mike. Um, Essentially, just, it just comes down to like having a process and a routine and a set of skills, just like. For their golf swing, they have a process, a routine, and a set of skills. Treating mindset no different than any other skill. Yeah, that's a that's a really really good way to put it. Is a lot of people when they come to work with me, is I go, hey, you you're able to earn money. You're you've been able to keep the money. You want to get better at it because you recognize that doing it on your own isn't going to get you to your full potential. Although it'll probably be fine you're probably not going to go broke, right? You're going to do all right. You know, the biggest difference between getting to where you are and getting to your full potential is having something that's very specific in what you're doing, having a process, having a routine, having something that we are committing to. Um, do people recognize that when they choose to hire you, when they seek you out, or do they, once you tell them that, they go, oh, yeah, duh. I get it now, yeah. I, I think it's a little bit of both. Like the more emo emotionally intelligent people know that, like the women know that. Um, some of the super introspective guys know that. Um, you know, it's 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 not everyone. S some of them need a little bit of explaining because it's just like not how they're trained to think. But, you know, you guys are in the business realm. Two, two products in the same field. One sells 10 million a year. One sells 100 million a year. Like more likely than not, it's not that one product is better than the other. One company's systems are better than the other, right? Yeah. Their marketing system, their 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 production system, their logistic systems. Systems is what builds better businesses, just like systems is what builds good teams. Alabama football, Clemson football, Georgia football, um, UConn football, uh, UConn basketball. These teams, any of the big MMA teams, yeah, they don't have a better playbook. Yeah, they don't have a better playbook. They don't know any secrets. They have better systems. Systems for recruiting, systems for donations, systems for culture building. Everything is systems and you will default to the level of your system. So I come in and the reason I, I, I get a lot of results, uh, like drastic results, is that they've never touched this. Imagine someone's an elite athlete. They've never been to the gym and then hire one of the best strength coaches in the country. Yeah. You're going to go through the roof. So this is a room that they've never decorated at all. When you look at systems and and sort of reworking some of these systems. Do you find that they need more systems or fewer systems? Overthinkers need fewer. Well, let me rephrase. Most of them have no systems. Yeah, okay. Um, All right. At best, they have like, at most, at best, they have like some level of systems. Like, let's take a high-performing team. Those teams have systems for a lot of stuff. They just don't have a system for mental performance. Yeah. They have good ideas. They have some good, like I, I would say hardly anybody has a system for mental performance. No. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm not even sure I, I would yeah. know what a, what a system for mental performance looks like other than asking some basic questions about why. Yeah. To give you, to break it down into like basic terms. Um, the goal should not be to work hard and hope that you win. My goal is to teach you how to reverse engineer a great performance so that the best version of you shows up every single time. In order to do that, you need to know what the best version of you looks like. You need to have like that's on a, you need to know the thoughts and feelings that bring out your best, the actions that bring out your best, and a set of mental skills to 
maintain your focus during the ups and downs of training and competing. So the skills are the glue. The reverse engineering process is like the GPS. And, you know, the emotional control is what allows us to navigate on autopilot. I want to make my athletes and teams be like a self-driving Tesla, where at a point, we're just plugging in the destination. Great performance. Boom. We know it brings out our best. We know it brings out our worst. We we know like the we, we have a very clear game plan coming into every practice, coming into every matchup. We assess all of those things. We take a lot of data um, and we have routines before every single match in practice. We have uh, routines that th- these routines don't change. So world championship finals, first round of a Naga tournament, doesn't matter. I ask the same questions so that I feel the same things. I warm up the same way so that I grapple the same way. So this set of like process and routines, like I said, allows us to reverse engineer our, our, our best self instead of work hard, roll the dice and hope that we win. Yeah. It's like um, in, in our company, and this is obviously not my idea, but we do 8 a.m. team meeting. We ask the same questions. We talk about the same thing every single day. And when I tried to talk to low performing teams about that, like, oh, I get, well, yeah, we did that for a week, but geez, we're just saying the same thing. We're just, we need to really, we need to set our values every day. Do I need to ask the, ask my employees, what's the most important thing that I, you need for me today? Do I need to do that? Yeah, we didn't have any issues. We didn't, we didn't have it. There was nothing going wrong. So we did, we actually just skipped it today. Yeah. Um. Yeah. No, part of it is, and, and like once I pushed through the, oh, this is kind of awkward. It's been four weeks straight of doing the same thing. You know, it only takes two minutes, but like, oh, wow, this is super important. I can't imagine not doing this. This is data. everything. Yeah. It's data. Yeah, exactly. I have a journal that I make my one-on-one clients send me every day. They answer the same 13 questions every single day. A few in the morning, a few at night, a few before practice, a few after practice. And it's the same questions. So the challenge is, do you not do it at all? because it's monotonous or you don't like it? Do you do it because you have to and give surface level answers? Or is it an opportunity for you to dig in, learn more about yourself, bring attention to what you need, set intention for what you want to do tomorrow, and then assess how good of a job that you did? So my highest performer is like, it's, I always tell them, I was like, this is your biggest asset. This daily journal is your absolute basic biggest asset. These questions are made to rewire your brain to focus on like joy, excitement, gratitude, self-improvement. It's also meant to give you daily data. If you grappled once a week leading up to the world championships, you wouldn't be very good at it. So if you only talked about these things with me in a mindset call once a week, you wouldn't be very good at it. But if you touch on these things every day, then touch base with me once a week, we're getting better seven days out of the week, measurably. And that's the biggest driver to success and it also just brainwashes their everything to focus on the right thing. So point is, if your team was ever struggling with this or you tell other people's teams, that's that's because they're giving surface level answers. They feel like they have to do this instead yeah. of it's an opportunity to get good data and set the tone for the day. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And, and when employees re- respond that way, it is useless. And if I'm asking the question in that way, then I'm, 
I'm then it's definitely useless. If if my team thinks that I'm just asking them because oh it's eight o'clock and I told you I would call you and so now you're expecting this, then it's it would be better for me to not have that call skip. But what, if you do it, are, it's great. I'm going and, to go ahead. Well, I, I was going to ask you what are some of those questions that you're asking? Those thirteen that you you don't have to give me all those questions, but just to frame it out, the sure. types of questions you're asking. I'll frame the types of questions and then I'll, so I do some executive coaching. Um, and so I'll, I'll, I'll put it in those terms as well. So before I go to the executive, imagine this is an athlete, right? So they have questioned, they have morning gratitude, evening gratitude, daily improvement, uh, as well as daily standards. Okay. So you talk about your values. I have my clients identify their values. As a competitor, as a person, they evaluate themselves daily on how good of a job they lived up to their values. Because as a competitor, for example, if you want to be relentless, technical, and tough, if you're three out of three in each of those areas, you probably had a good practice or probably had a good match. It's hard to win. It's easy to be relentless, technical, and tough. Okay. So anyways, morning gratitude, evening gratitude, daily improvement, daily standards, and then they have pre-practice dopamine. Okay. Like four questions to ask for every practice. So for my executives... Morning gratitude, evening gratitude, daily standards, daily improvement, but pre-meeting dopamine questions. Meetings are monotonous, right? So how do I how do I get myself treating every meeting just as important as the next? The really big ones, like just another one, the really lame ones, like a big one, you know, you treat them all the same. So I'll tell you what those four questions are, right? Okay. So you're, you're, you're getting ready for a meeting and uh, these would be the four questions you would ask. What's fun, what's fun or exciting about this next meeting? Where's the opportunity for this next meeting? What can I control? What can't I control? What's the game plan? Start with your top three priorities you'd like to accomplish. Walk in every yeah. meeting like that. Oh, I like it. I like it. That's perfect. Yeah. I've noticed that just having a few minutes, like obviously I don't, I've never asked myself those questions before, um, but having a few minutes to sit there and go, okay. Let me get ready for this like it's something important. <laughs> you know, that's how I get ready for practice at jiu-jitsu. I don't just walk straight from the from the car to practice, and that's practice. Nobody's grading it. There's no trophy. There's no medal. I sit there, and I do my breaths, and I do my warm-up, and then I get on the mat. I should do that for meeting, and I've been doing it, and it's you should. huge. It's huge. There um, is there's something, there's an acronym I came up with. To showcase our potential, we need to aim in the right direction. AIM, standing for A-I-M-E. Bring attention to the thoughts and feelings you want. Set intention for what you want to execute. Manage your focus, energy, and emotion. And evaluate how good of a job that you did. So if, if you want to walk into a meeting or a match or practice, bring attention and intention to the things that you want. During that time, manage your thoughts, feelings, energy, and focus. And then evaluate how good of a job that you did. And that's, again, that's, that's a Colby level thing. Most people just, you, like me, we could probably have no script, no nothing, go and wing a meeting and do great. Yeah. If we can do an eight out of 10 with no preparation, how good of a job could we do with a little bit of preparation? Yeah. One of the biggest tests that I would give um, new hires, and they didn't know that it was a test, is something I learned from Sean, is setting up the physical meeting room, Right. And, and the art of setting it up is we're having people, this is back when the majority of our meetings were in person in the office, which now they're on Zoom and it's a totally different thing. Set up the meeting room. 
okay, so we have a little a notepad with our logo on it and a pen and a coaster and some a bottle of water. It's only four things. I go, the, you need to go in there and put this a certain number of inches from the, the little notepad, a certain number of inches from the edge of the table with the pin diagonally placed with the logo of the pin facing me and the point of the pin going up and to the left. And then you're, the, the coaster is on the right and the logo on the water bottle is facing the purse. And that seems easy. People wouldn't get it done. I go, look, this is this is the act of, this is your meditative preparation for this right. meeting is to get ready. It's not that the client's going to see the logo on the water bottles facing away from them and they're going to fire you. It's, this is your, this is like you watering your bonsai tree. Okay. I need you to just have something that is ritualistic about this. So you don't just run into the meeting. Oh yeah. Sorry. I was uh, responding to an email, but how's it going, Mike? And the best, the people who were serious and got results, they would take that serious. They would treat how they place the notepad with the same level of seriousness as they approach the tax strategy on, you know, their retirement plan. And the people who didn't care, everything's like, important. Cares, they failed. Yeah. Well, it's kind of like the set the bed analogy, right? Like, like, um, you know, you should set your bed with the same intention as you do the, you know, anything else in that day. Like, do you not set your bed at all? Do you set it like crap? Do you set it perfect? Um, the other thing, why do you think that I ask my clients before every practice and before every match to ask them the same four questions? Why do you think I, I ask them to ask themselves the same exact four questions? What are some of the reasons? Well, it creates a system and a habit. Creates a system. So what does creating a system do? Well, it's repeatable. You, it gives you data points so you know if I'm giving the same answer and this time I give a different answer, now I know something. Yeah. Why else? Uh, I, I think it gets you in a mindset of simplifying the energy and focusing the energy. In other words, if I if I can evaluate it you, that. It tells you what yeah. to focus on. Yeah, tell me what to focus on. And I, and I, there we go. Yeah. All right. So all of those things are spot on. Let me spin it in my language. If I want you to have consistent performances, I need you to have consistent thoughts, feelings, and behaviors. If I want you to, if I want you to compete the same way, I need you to think and feel the same way. If I want you to think and feel the same way, I need you to, I need you to ask yourself questions and do things that make you think and feel those things. So those four questions, they center around fun and excitement, opportunity, um, confidence, and calmness, right? What can I control? What can I not? What's my game plan? So like fun, excitement, opportunity, calm, confident. If I want you to feel those four things, if that's what I identify as like what's going to bring out most everybody's best, then your answers to those will do a couple things. It'll reverse engineer the good performances, but you'll also treat practice like matches and matches like practice. You'll treat the big games no different than the small games because you're asking the same things and you're you're asking the same things and you are therefore thinking the same thing. So you're feeling the same thing. So you're performing the same way. Meetings and work days and things like that are no different. Now, with with regards to that, it 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 obviously it'll allow us to treat every situation the same, but it'll also give us an opportunity, like you said, to collect data. So think about it. Let's take let's take an MMA fight. Okay. Let's say I'm fighting somebody really bad. Well, what am I excited about? I'm way better than this person. Um, probably going to have a highlight real knockout. 
Um, I'm going to be able to work on some new stuff instead of just having to only focus on my best. Well, I'm fighting one of the best in the world this weekend. Well, I'm excited for the challenge. It's going to test me. This is what I wanted. The common theme is excitement. The reasons to be excited is different, but the problem is everybody like brings their, 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 everybody thinks and feels different things depending on the circumstances of the matches, the meetings, the, the, the significance of the client. I treat Zhang Wei Li no different than I treat a master's world champion. Like yeah. they're, they're no different, right? There's reasons to be excited and there's opportunity for each of them. So. Yeah, that's, that's perfect. Hey, uh, one, one final question. What would you say is your biggest single decision-making tip for people? It's a great question. And I've answered this many times. So I have an answer for you. Every time that you need to make a decision, you should ask yourself effective questions. Okay. So talk to yourself more listen to yourself less. Okay. Our brain says a lot of things. If your brain says jump off a building, it's easier to tell yourself not to, right? So when you have to make a decision, ask yourself very simple questions. And I have a, a step-by-step process on, on how to do this. Okay. But I'll just give you the questions. Is this productive or unproductive? Is this decision productive or unproductive? Does it bring me closer or farther from my goals? Does this reflect my priority list? Um, is this a bad situation? How can I make the best of it? You can go down that list of questions. And if you want to intelligently answer, yes, it's unproductive, but I'm going to do it anyway. No, it brings me farther from my goals. I'm going to do it anyway. That's your choice. But when you present it to your your logical brain that way, then you're going to have to use illogical emotion to, to outweigh that decision. It makes sense. If you know yeah. this is a bad decision and you ask yourself and you admit that, but you choose to do it anyway, okay, it's cool. That's your choice. You just have to rationalize why you're doing Yeah. Ask yourself effective questions. Decision comes, is this unproductive or productive? Bring me closer or farther from my goal? Um, does this reflect my priority list? If you've answered no to any of these, then your decision should be clear. And then worst case, let's say the decision is already made for you and it's a shitty situation. How do I make the best of it? Or worst case scenario, how do I polish a turd? Yeah. yeah. At men said Mike on Instagram. Cool. Where else can people find you? Unfairadvantagemindset.com. Cool. Thanks for being here, Mike. Thanks a lot, Mike. Thank you. My takeaway is around creating a system of questions. He's got multiple questions in his program and having those questions where we ask ourselves, what can we do to seek growth and improvement? I thought that was, that was really good. My biggest takeaway is the questions that he has executives ask before they walk into a meeting. I think those are great questions to ask. Of course, if you work in jobs like we do, where we have daily meetings that are very, very important probably works in your family. Probably works before date night, you know? Hey, hold on. Let me take five minutes. Not even five minutes. Let me take one minute. What do I want to feel when I am out to dinner with my wife? And everything that we do that is important, we can approach with intentionality with respect to our mindset. You just made a great decision to listen to this episode of Decidedly. Make another great decision and leave us a five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your support. It helps others find our community and defeat bad decision-making in their own lives. For more daily decision-making insights, check us out at decidedlypodcast.com and on Facebook and Instagram at Decidedly Podcast. Thanks again for listening. I'm Sanger Smith, and this is Decidedly.
Insights, advice, and comments provided by Sean Smith, Sanger Smith, and speakers identified as part of the Decidedly podcast should not be considered recommendations. Speakers not identified as members of Decidedly are expressing their opinion, and their statements should not be construed as reflecting the views of the Decidedly team. This podcast is produced solely for informational purposes, not personalized advice.